So there is a kind of fear that's fun. There is. Like, this is why we watch, like, scary movies. This is why we like to drive fast cars and go on roller coasters. And and this is why people like to do things like bungee cords and jump out of airplanes. This is why on hot summer nights, my kids love it. If we go to the very back of the yard, it's already dark, the darkest place. No light gets back there. And we sit behind the tree. And then I tell them the story of how our neighborhood was once an Indian burial ground. It's true, yeah. And if you listen close enough, you can still hear them. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. It gets them every time. They love it. They love it. Some types of fear are fun. We like to be scared. We pay good money to be scared. We seek it. Except, of course, my wife. (laughs) My wife, I didn't know this about her when we first got married, but she hates being scared. And so I used to do what normal people do. I would scare her, frighten her a little, just for fun, having fun. And I did that until one time she punched me in the nose so hard. (laughs) I thought it was going to break. I don't scare her anymore. The point remains, though, most people I think fear is kind of fun. But there's, there's another type of fear. There's destructive fear. There's a fear that will destroy relationships and paralyze you. It will steal your life. There's a terrible fear. And then, and then if you're a parent, you know this, there is a good fear. There's a fear that will send you running from danger. A fear that teaches you not to play with guns or drink bleach or... Get in that van with a stranger. There is a good fear, a fear that can save your life. So when we first moved to Phoenixville, we lived in the borough. On one of those streets, is like this little hillside, and right off the street was this three-story building. We lived in the top two floors, and so like we'd come in off the street, street parking only, which is awesome. And then we'd have to go up three flights of stairs just to get into our apartment. It was insane, and we had two little ones, like a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and... um. And, you know, life was uh, generally good there, kind of challenging at times. But one time, uh, we're in the middle of a conversation in our kitchen, which is, again, on the second floor, but way up. And um, we're having a conversation, Jenny and I. And then in the middle of it, we hear a shriek, like a shriek. Like, you guys' parents know that there's different cries your kids have, right? They're like, uh, he's annoying me cry, or I want attention cry, or I'm actually bleeding cry. But this, this was one of those, it was a shriek. You know, the type of one that gets the adrenaline pumping and allows moms to, like, tackle grizzly bears. Um, and Jenny, I stop, like any parent would, and we, I, I run into the living room. She's not there. Jenny runs in the dining room, not there. We meet up in, in the hallway, and we look at each other, like, and she's still shrieking. And Jenny says, she's outside. And so we sprint down the stairs, and Jenny scoops her up and says, Never, never, never go outside by yourself again. And uh, this little girl, three-year-old, had gone somehow over the baby gate all the way down and locked herself outside. I'm pretty sure she was so scared after that that she didn't want to go outside for about five years. (laughs) But that's okay. Because we lived ten feet from the road at the time. And if we wanted our daughter to survive to her fourth birthday... She needed to have a fear of being locked outside, of being separated from us, a fear of the street, a fear of strangers. She needed to have a good fear. Um, Today, we are going to look at a passage that is horrifying, intentionally so. 
the Apostle Paul is going to try and instill in the Corinthians and in us a fear, a good fear, a fear that could save us. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Can I just say, this is one of those passages, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. This is one of those passages that um, if you're visiting for the first time or you're not sure where you're at in your relationship with God today, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I never would have picked this passage for today. Um, it's just part of the way we go through the Bible. Like, you just come to these passages, and some of the passages are awesome and inspiring and uplifting, and some of them are the ones that you will never, ever see on a coffee mug. You will never read on a coffee mug First Corinthians 10, 8, and in one day, 23,000 died. So um, this very well might not be the message you wanted to hear today, but it very might, well might be the message that we need to hear today. So... Ready or not, here we come. Last week, as we were finishing out um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we finished on this, this, this bomb. The Apostle Paul dropped this bomb that said, The greatest opponent I face in my life is me. Like the thing that could most take me out in life, the thing that could most destroy me. It's me. It's my own selfishness, my own selfish desires. It's me. The greatest threat to you is you, he's saying. And then we read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. The passage ended like this. So what does Paul do? He says, I strike a blow to my body. Like I have to beat into submission my desires. I have to fight. It's like a battle. It's like a boxing match. And make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And we, we talked about that, that phrase, disqualified for the prize, literally could be translated, not be shown a counterfeit. Like it's the exact same language of like a counterfeit money, of counterfeit coin. Like, it might look the same, but it's worthless. And the Apostle Paul says, there's a counterfeit faith. There's a faith that is fake. There is a person who says, I love Jesus, but then chooses everything else in life. There's a person who says, um, thy will be done. But then, so, then never actually submits to God in terms of finances and relationships and sex life. There's a person who says, I love my neighbor, but never actually does anything for them. There's a person who says, I believe in the good news, but never actually tells anyone. But then, 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 the Apostle Paul is going to say, um, and if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, if I don't fight for my life, I could be that person. And by implication, you could too. Pretty much ever since the Apostle Paul wrote that, every single thinking person who's thoughtfully read these words has read these and then said, Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> if the Apostle Paul thinks that he could be that person, that he could, his faith could be shown to be faith, what does that mean for me? Which brings us to chapter 10, verse 1, and it begins like this. Four. All right, stop right there. Important word. In Greek, this is the word gar, which is worth absolutely nothing to know. But, 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 this is a specific use of the word. We call this an explanatory gar, which means, which means, everything we're about to read for the next 13 verses, everything Paul's about to say, he's saying, let me explain this to you. Like, I just talked about how if I don't fight for it, I could be disqualified. I could have a fake faith, and you could too. Let's talk about that for the next 13 verses. It goes like this, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, literally fathers there, 
were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So I want you to see this. Um, this right here from verse 1 to verse 4 is a run-on sentence. It's one long sentence in Greek. And the Apostle Paul, he's just trying to blitz through this. to like It's like he's trying to say it all in one breath because he really wants us to get the idea. He's like, remember, remember, remember the story of Exodus. Do you remember it? So God saves his people out of Egypt. They're out of slavery in Egypt to a wicked king named Pharaoh. God saves them out. He pulls them out ten plagues later. He draws them through the Red Sea. The sea closes behind them. It's like their baptism. And then they're led by this cloud out into the wilderness where God tests them. And over that time, in that place of deprivation where they have nothing, where they have to fully depend upon God, in that place of testing, he's going to make them into his very own people. He's going to form a relationship with them like no other people on the face of this earth have ever had. Do you remember it? Do you remember it? Do you remember it? Do you remember it? It's like, now this is a great story, right? I want you to notice a few things that the Apostle Paul says in here, though, um, and does with this text. This text is one of those texts where this has almost nothing to do with his message, but a lot to do with how we read the Bible. So I just want to pause real quick and say, um, when you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, I want to know like, how I can be safe, how I can be saved, how I can have a relationship with God. Like, What does it mean to love Jesus and follow Jesus in 2018? Um, where does the Apostle Paul go? Does he say, well, you need to read the Gospels, read about Jesus? No. Does he say, well, I've got this great book, the book of Romans. It tells you all the way through how you're saved. No. Where does the Apostle Paul go? The Old Testament. He goes to Exodus, the story of Exodus. That for the Apostle Paul, I mean, for us, this is just so weird. Like, the Apostle Paul just pulled out this ancient Near Eastern text about sheep herding slaves who find salvation through miraculous works. And we're like, what does that have to do with 2018? And the Apostle Paul, though, he doesn't see it that way. He says, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus today, look at what it meant to follow God, to be saved back then. In fact, in fact, in fact, I, I just want to camp out here for just a second, maybe get a soapbox up, because there's been stuff in the news even recently about pastors and churches that no longer talk about the Old Testament because they don't think it's relevant. They don't think it's helpful. And according to Paul, John, Peter, Matthew, the author of Hebrews, Jesus, like the book of Exodus is essential to our faith. Like if you look at all the language they use, they pull it right out of the book of Exodus. If you want to know what it means to be saved, set free, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, children of God, you need to read Exodus. If you want to understand communion, what it means to be the church, why we pray, give us this day our daily bread, you need to read the book of Exodus. Because if we do not read the book of Exodus, verse 1, you will be ignorant. Ignorance, the word he uses. And Paul says, for I do not want you to be ignorant. I want you to understand our faith. And if you want to understand our faith, let's talk about this. And he pushes this even further, though. He's going to push our connection, our connection with Exodus even further. He says this. He talks about, um, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, literally our fathers, are we're all under the cloud and they were all passed through the sea. Do you get this? Our fathers. Now, how many, how many, if you guys were here earlier in the series, how many of the Corinthians were Jews? Almost not. How many in here have Jewish heritage? You don't have to raise your hand, but there's a few. 
but almost none. And Paul calls them our fathers. This is directly, explicitly opposed to what Jewish teachers of his day taught. They taught that if you were a convert, but you were not Jewish, when you came in, you were to pray, our God and the God of their fathers. But Paul says, no, 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 they're our fathers, yours and mine. If you trust the promises that God made to Abraham, then you're part of the family of God. Abraham's your father. The Israelites are your fathers. The Old Testament is your book. I want you to hear this. um, Biology does not define your relationship with God. I don't care if you were born a Jew, and I don't care if you were born and raised in church. That does not automatically put you in the family of God. Biology does not define our relationship with God. Faith does. And then look at the parts that Paul emphasizes here. He says, notice how they passed under the cloud and or they went under the cloud and passed through the sea. And then he says something odd. He says, that's their baptism. They were baptized into Moses. And you're like, baptized into Moses? What does that mean? It doesn't mean they were literally dunked. I baptize you in the name of Moses as they went through the Red Sea. What he means here is that when they went through the Red Sea, when they followed that cloud and they went through the Red Sea, it was an irrevocable step of faith. They were identifying with Moses. Moses was their mediator who was going to lead them into a relationship with God. That when they went through that and the, and the enemy was crushed behind them, there was literally no going back to Egypt. There was no turning back to their old way of life. They had to start something new. The old Israel had died. The new was born. Do you get it? Do you get it? He says, this is their baptism. And then he goes on and says, and remember how, remember that what they ate and what they drank, that spiritual food and that spiritual drink. That remember that in the wilderness, God literally fed them with manna each day. Enough showed up on the ground for them to eat. And when they were thirsty, there was a rock and that rock water, fresh water gushed forth. That, the Apostle Paul is saying, that spiritual food, that spiritual drink, we should be thinking, he's going to go in the very next section of this chapter, we should be thinking about communion. In fact, he makes it explicit here that he says that rock was Christ. The same way we see Christ in our communion, they should see Christ and manna and the rock. And you're like, this is the part where it gets really confusing. If you're not used to the Apostle Paul here, you're like, wait a second. Is Paul literally saying that that rock was Jesus? (laughs) Did Jesus become a rock? Are we supposed to worship it? And the answer is, the answer is um, no. That's to miss Paul's point. We need to read this the same way we read Jesus' statement. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Do we literally worship bread? Does it literally mean that he became manna to feed the Israelites? And the answer is no, no, no. But it means something deeper. Jesus means that I'm the one who fed them every day. I'm the source of the manna. I'm the source of their life. I'm the source of all things. And the Apostle Paul, he's going to say the same with this rock. He says, he's not saying that Jesus literally became a rock. He's saying something much, much bigger. He's saying that if we have eyes to see, when we see that rock, when we see the water gushing forth, we will see that Jesus is in and under and before that. That apart from Jesus, that rock would not exist. Apart from him, we would not live. He is our life. He's our source of life. He's the source of the rock. He's the source of the life. He's the source of everything. That for the Apostle Paul, if we read the Old Testament properly, we will see that Jesus 
He's everywhere. He is the rock. He's the Passover lamb. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the bread of life. He's the water. He's the new and better Moses. He's the word of creation. He's the great I am. And some people get all weirded out like this. They're like, but that's crazy. If we start saying Jesus is everywhere, we'll, we'll like open up the Bible and just make it say whatever we want. We'll just see, we'll think Jesus is literally everywhere. And my answer to that is You know, that's the great part about being God. <laughs> you can literally be everywhere. If we do not see Jesus everywhere, it's not because he's not there in scriptures or in our lives. If we do not see Jesus here now, if we do not see Jesus in one another, if we do not hear Jesus' voice in our singing and in the preaching, if we do not see him in nature and in creation and beauty and laughter and the food we eat and the air we breathe, it is not because he is not present. It's because we're blind. Okay, back on track here, though. That is clearly an implication of what Paul's teaching here, but that is not his point. His point is this. If we want to understand our lives, the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus, we need to look at the ancient Israelites. And I want you to notice this parallel he's setting up because he's going to come back to it again and again. He's going to say, now the ancient Israelites, they were set free from slavery just like us. They were led by God just like us. They were baptized just like us. They were sustained with food and drink, kind of like our communion, just like us. And he says, and nevertheless, though, verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Fantastic. Happy Memorial Day. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So what's so wrong? Why were these these churched, baptized, communion-taking believers of the Old Testament, why were their bodies killed and their bodies scattered across the wilderness? He says, because they set their hearts on evil things. He said, they set their hearts on evil things. That these things happen as an example so that we don't do the same. And I want you to, don't miss this. He's saying that the Israelites' problem... The Corinthian problem, our problem, is a heart problem. They craved evil. They craved evil. So if you, um, if you say you love God, if you love God, you're like, ah, I love God, but then you keep accidentally falling into sin... The Apostle Paul is going to say, no, like you don't accidentally fall into sin. It doesn't work like that. The reason we sin is because we want to sin. The reason we sin is because we love sinning. The problem is not that we sin. The problem is our heart. We have a heart that leads us into sin. Do you get this? The problem is not the evil things the Israelites did. The problem is is their heart was not changed. They were physically, externally saved by God, but they were not internally changed by God yet. So Dallas Willard writes um, a very helpful, very dense, hard-to-read book called Renovation of the Heart. And in it, he has this helpful reflection on how how some people will go about in life and, and they will do something sinful or foolish like they'll, they'll blow up in anger. They'll fall into lust, whatever that means. 
They'll do something terribly hurtful. They'll say something that they can never take back. And then they'll be like, oh, but that wasn't me. I just blew it. I just blew it. That is not me. I just blew it. And he says in his book, I went, I, this is worth reading. He says, while it may be true that there are other circumstances in which I would not have done the foolish or sinful thing I did. And while what I did may not fully represent me fully, blowing it does represent me fully. I am the kind of person who blows it. Blowing it shows who I am as a person. I am, through and through, in my deepest self, the kind of person who blows it. Do you hear what he's saying? If you just accidentally fall into sin, it's not just accidental. That's part of your character. It's deep, deep. It's expression deep within you that when you read through the scriptures, you find there are actions are the fruit, the overflow, the proof, the outworking of our desire. So if we are kind and loving and generous and gracious, it's because it's within our heart to be that. It overflows. And if we are greedy and lustful and sinful and self-promoting and selfish, it's because we have a heart problem. The Apostle Paul is then going to say, These Israelites, they're an example of a people who are outwardly changed. Like they went to church, they were baptized, they took communion, they did all the right Christian things. But they were not inwardly changed. They lusted for evil. And then he's going to give us four examples, four horrifying examples intended to scare us, to show what happens to someone who plays church, who fakes their faith. What happens to a counterfeit? Oh, this is fun. Four examples that should terrify us. Ready? Are you guys excited about this one? Each one's a little bit better. (laughs) This is like uh, example number one. He's going to take us to Exodus chapter 32. So in verse 7 of chapter 10, he says this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Um, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and got up to indulge in revelry. It literally says um, that they sat down to play. All right. So if you remember Exodus chapter 32, which I'm sure all of you do right now, um, Moses goes up Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And then Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, it literally there says, they saw that he was shamefully late. Like some of you coming to church, shamefully late, right? Like He's taking so long here. So, so here's the question they're faced with. Okay, on the one hand, God just rescued you out of slavery. He did miraculous works for you. He passed, let you pass through the ocean. He destroyed your enemies. He fed you every day with manna. He gave you water from the rock. He gave you a cloud to lead you by day, fire by night. And now he's brought you to this mountain to do what he's never done for any other people in the history of the world, to to establish a personal relationship with you, to say, I am your God and you are my people. Now, on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, this is taking a long time. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings and bring them to me. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said to these people, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These are your gods. They exchange 
a relationship with the God of the universe for an idol, a cow, an Egyptian God. They trade something real for something fake. But notice the, this is not the part that the Apostle Paul points to. He points to just a couple of verses later where it says, And then after this big idol thing, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry to play. And this is, um, they're sitting in front of the idol and they're feasting and then they got up to play, which, um, kids, this was not Monopoly. Uh, yeah, so it's a euphemism. I'll let you guess what it was for. And so um, if you've been here the past few weeks, do you remember what the issue was in ancient Corinth? What did the people want to do? Yeah, they do want to play. What else? What do they want to eat? Food sacrificed to idols. They want to go to the pagan temples in Corinth because they say idols aren't a real thing. And I can go there and I can sit and I can feast and then I can watch the prostitutes play. I can do it. It's not going to affect me spiritually. I still love Jesus. I go to church. I've been baptized. I take communion. That's not going to affect me. It's not going to affect my salvation. So, so get the parallel. The Israelites were saved just like you. They were led by God just like you. They were baptized just like you. They were fed by God just like you. And they wanted to eat food sacrificed to idols just like you. And can I tell you what happened next? At the Lord's command, 3,000 Saved, baptized, led by God, believers were slaughtered with the sword. Let that sink in. Example number two, Numbers 25. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And one day, 23,000 of them died. This, this, he's like, do you remember this story? This is a great story. We should all like, we should share this over dining table with our kids. It's when the men of Israel started having all kinds of promiscuous sex with the Moabite women. Yeah, do you remember that? And then, very next verse, what did they do? They started worshiping their God. So what's God do? Does he say, oh no, but they're baptized. I have to save them and love them because they're my special people. No, he sends a plague. And they start to die by the thousands. Moses sees what's going on and he stops everything. He calls this giant assembly a meeting and he says, we have to repent. We have to repent. We, we're blatantly, blatantly rebelling against what God told us to do. He's invited us into a relationship with him. And what are you doing? And there in the middle of the assembly, there's this one dude who has the audacity. Like people are literally weeping at that moment. It says in the text, they're weeping over their sins. They're repenting before God. People were dying from the plague because of their sins. And this one guy ignores all of it, takes a woman, goes into his tent. And then we read that famous, famous verse that I'm sure all of you will memorize with your kids later. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Thanks be to God. Example number three. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Just when you think it can't get any worse. So the, uh, the, the other day I was uh, with my kids and we were watching Planet Earth 2. Have you guys seen these BBC documentaries? They are ridiculously good. Like cinematic, like geniuses, I tell you. And if you're asking, like, how good could a nature show be? Better than you're thinking right now. 
It's amazing. You'll laugh. You'll cry. Become pretty. We saw this little guy just be born. That's his shell right there. Like, he just cracked out of his egg, and he's like, a little iguana baby pops out of the sand, and we're like, oh, he's so cute. Me and my kids are sitting there. Like, what's this little baby doing? He's looking around, and then he starts running. We're like, what's baby running for? And then they change the camera angle. Hundreds. Hundreds of snakes all pop their heads up and they start to watch baby. And right as he gets closer, they swarm all of them. We're like, run, baby, run! The rocks run! Baby does not make it. (laughs) My kids were like devastated. We're all weeping. Terrible. I'm not usually freaked out by snakes, but this was truly horrifying, like a whole new level. It might be the worst thing I've ever seen. And just, just after we've had 3,000 people killed with a sword and plagues and someone getting speared through while they're playing, the Apostle Paul's like, snakes! (laughs) Numbers 21, what happens? These people start grumbling. They start despising God himself. They start complaining about their salvation and about the fact that he forced them to be saved. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And what's God do? He, verse 6, sends venomous snakes among them. Yikes. Example number four. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. I'm not even going to go into this one. You get the idea. So I want you to see this parallel, though. We've seen that again and again and again, four times now. Um, the, Israelites, the Israelites were saved just like you, and they were led by God just like you, and they were baptized just like you, and they were fed by God just like you, and they lusted for evil things just like some of you, he says. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. He means we now live in the time after Jesus Christ. So if they were following a cloud and a rock, we know Jesus. We've seen him. We've read his words. We know him. And to rebel against him, to despise him, to choose another false god... To turn away from him after you've seen that he died on the cross for you. Do you know how insane that is? If these Israelites who were saved, led by God, baptized, took communion, if they met this horrifying end, what do you think is going to happen to us if we act outwardly like we're Christians but are not inwardly changed? Do you really think that going to church, being baptized, singing praise songs, listening to K-Love, eating Chick-fil-A is going to save you? It says, no, you might look like a Christian. You might dress like a Christian. You might think you are a Christian. But when you get into the wilderness, when you come to that place of testing, when God takes you to that place where you cannot meet your own needs, what will happen is your true desires, your real heart will be exposed in that time. You will be shown for who you are. You will be shown for whose you are. So if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So if you think you're safe, be careful. Be careful, he says. Now, now some of you are sitting there saying, Anderson, are you telling me that if I sin too bad, I'm going to lose my salvation? 
that, that Jesus is going to give up on me, that I'm going to be sent to hell because, just because I've son, uh, did too many sins? And the answer is no. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if your heart is unchanged, if you live in open, unrepentant rebellion and sin, if you don't feel guilty at all about doing things that God forbids and hates, if you quickly, quickly grumble and despise God and, and choose other things over Him, you did not lose your salvation. You never had it. You might look like a Christian. You might pray to receive Jesus. You might be baptized and take communion. But if that faith in Jesus does not change your heart, if it doesn't change you internally, if it doesn't stir you to love him and worship him, if it doesn't lead you to mourn over your sins and repent, if it doesn't change you, then it's fake. It's a counterfeit, Paul's saying. Uh, John, who is not known for being nice, says it this way. 1 John 2.4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. To know Jesus is to know that he sacrificed everything for you. To know Jesus is to know that he is beautiful. To know Jesus is to know that he's the only way to life. To know Jesus is to know that he is the hope and he's what you're really seeking in life. To know Jesus is to know that he is in and under and before all things. To know Jesus is to love Jesus, John is saying. And if you say, I know him, but are under, utterly unchanged and unmoved, if you, do not, if you say you know him, but do not love him, you're a liar. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Paul finishes with this. He says, you know what? Um, these things, these temptations, these tests that we've been facing... It's the same thing that the Israelites faced. It's the same things that people have been facing since the beginning, since Adam and Eve. But get this, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted, or the word tested might fit better there. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you're tested, he will provide a way out so you can endure it. That if God leads you into the wilderness, you can be sure of this. He's going to come with you. If he's testing you, it's not to kill you, it's not to destroy you, it's to purify you. If he's testing you, if he's bringing you through something hard, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you and he wants you to become what he's called you to become. He wants you to be a kingdom of priests, his very child. He wants you to know him. He wants you to give up your false loves and your false gods and all the things that will destroy you and find life in him. He wants you to stop heading down the path that leads to death. So at the end of a passage of like this, I, I honestly just don't know what to say except um, two things, two things. One, there's a fun fear. There's a terrible, destructive fear. And there's a good fear. Let's just make sure we categorize this. Paul is trying to give us a good fear a good fear, not a destructive fear. So if you're sitting there saying, oh no, I lied once. And if you feel bad about it, you know what the, the good thing about that is? That's a sign that God's working in your life. If you feel bad about your sin, that is a sign of salvation. That's the Spirit's working in you. You're listening to His voice. But if you, if you don't feel bad about things that God has explicitly condemned, 
if you find yourself quickly choosing everything over Jesus, if your heart is not moved by the fact that he died on the cross for you, you should be afraid. I don't want to close like this, though. I want to close with the gospel because this is just one little passage in a giant book, and this book is about Jesus. And the story of Jesus is not that he came to test you, not that he came to show that you don't really believe. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And if you are sitting there today saying, I'm lost. Apart from Jesus, I'm lost. That's great. Blessed are those who mourn. If you would just close your eyes, I want to I want to remind you of the gospel. This is not God's word for the world. This is God's word for you too. The God knew you before creation; that He created the world out of love, and even before you were born, He thought of you. He knew you, and He loved you, and He created you. He designed us for Himself to know Him and to love Him. And yet we have, through our own sin, through our selfishness, through our rebellion, through our brokenness, we've turned away from him. We've so often chosen our own way. And we deserve death. We deserve to be broken. If we follow our own way apart from him, we're ultimately separated from him. And to be separated from the God of life is death. And so he sent his son to come after us, to show us the way to life, to show us what kindness and love and good and life looks like. And when that wasn't enough, he died for us. He took the death that we deserve. And then he rose three days later, conquering that, showing us that his life is indestructible, unconquerable. And he is the way, he is the truth, the life and he calls us into his mission to be part of what he's part of what God is doing over the whole universe that he wants to do what happened to him he wants to happen to each and every one of us into our whole creation that he wants to make all things new now when you hear his voice when you see what he's doing in creation how will you respond father I pray that you give us hearts, hearts that are broken by our sins, hearts that are consumed by your love, hearts that are overwhelmed by your beauty. God, I pray that what Paul says to the Corinthians would not be true of us, that we would not be fake, that we would not be just external, but we would be a people who know your son. And we love him. Amen.